Thank you, Andrew. I don't know if anybody else who had to um, endure this trial had to have the pastor sitting on the front row while he was doing the uh, extra pressure, extra pressure. Well, thank you. I do appreciate the time. Good morning. Um, Hold on to Psalm 32. Uh, We'll be bouncing around, particularly in verses 1 through 7, and we'll close with verse 11. Um, There are some people in this world that you do not want to compare resumes with. And David, son of Jesse, is one of those people. I imagine his LinkedIn profile looks something like ruddy, handsome youth with demonstrated ability to defeat bears and lions as a teenager, assumed increasing levels of responsibility rising to Israelite champion in charge of killing Philistine giants and slaying his tens of thousands, skillful musician, capable of playing instruments while dodging spears thrown by bipolar kings, gifted poet and lyricist responsible for poetry read regularly three millennia later, successfully led multiple militias while on special assignments, chosen by God ahead of all of his peers and elders to be anointed king, assume kingship of Judah in time to be in the world's 40 under 40, orchestrated merger and acquisition of the northern kingdom within seven years, guaranteed by God to receive an everlasting kingdom, decades of consistent, faithful service, a man after God's own heart. And late one afternoon, transition to coveter, adulterer, cover-up artist, murderer, and conspirator. Life can change really quickly, right? Now, most of you um, looking at Psalm 32, we we understand that this is um, one of seven, what's called penitential psalms of David. And a penitential psalm is a fancy term for a psalm of contrition, a psalm of confession, a psalm of repentance, and it's all that. It's a psalm from David looking back upon the period of his sin with Bathsheba and the ensuing cover-up recorded in 2 Samuel 11. That is, you are probably familiar with Psalm 51. That's the real-time dealing of David during a period of David's life immediately following Nathan's confrontation of him. But Psalm 32 is is a retrospective. It's with a little bit of a longer lens reflecting upon that time, the state of his condition, and most importantly, the marvel of his deliverance. And so I called this Songs of Deliverance. Now, most of you are likely familiar with David's conspiracy in 2 Samuel 11, or at least you know the big picture. That is, after a long period of time of faithfully walking with God as God's anointed, He finally arrives at a point in his life in which the kingdom is consolidated under his reign and David is taking a breather. He has been on the run for decades, chased around to kingdom come by Saul, never taking things, the matters into his own hands, never being the agent of Saul's destruction, waiting patiently on the Lord to do what the Lord said he was going to do when he was anointed as king, which is to bring the kingdom under him. And then, as I alluded to earlier, it still took seven years 
for the kingdom to absolutely be consolidated. And here we are. Here we are, taking a breather. Now, many are quick to point out that in the spring setting, when the kings go out to war, David did not. He left that to Joab, his commander, his right-hand man. We might not make too much of that. That's not the first time, not necessarily an unpardonable sin, but it does speak a little bit to where David's heart may have been. Many are also quick to point out that David was just about at that age in which many men have a good old-fashioned midlife crisis. That is, he had poured himself out in youth. He had achieved the crown. It had been promised to him, and that, that, that crown that had been promised in 2 Samuel 7, it seemed, see if you can relate to this, that there were no more mountains to climb. And that can be a dangerous place. Sometimes taking a breather can be a good thing, but sometimes taking a breather also has its share of consequences. And against this backdrop, this man after God's own heart descends into a period of life which sends him to rock bottom. And it threatens everything. It threatens his life, his soul. It threatens everything. And what begins is a one-night stand or rape, depending on your view on how much uh, power Bathsheba had to say no. With another man's wife, goes terribly wrong when she announces her pregnancy. And it gets worse when David's plan A fails because he figured, hey, this won't be hard. We'll get Uriah back from the battle and uh, we'll just allow him to enjoy marital relations, and it'll be covered up. So he brings Uriah back, and he tries to coax him, gets him drunk, a little R&R. Uriah, being the bigger man at that point in time, you might remember, is on the doorstep of his house saying, how could I go into my home with my wife when the Ark of the Lord is on the battlefield. So plan A fails. So in the end, David goes to plan B, which is telling Joab, put your eye in the front, in such a place where when you withdraw intentionally, he will most certainly become a casualty of war. Just another person who sadly dies in battle. And so he does, and the deed is done, and the grieving widow engages in her period of mourning and becomes David's wife. The cover-up is complete. The conspiracy is in the rearview mirror. The narrative is written, and David can get back to doing kingly things, or so he thinks. Because Psalm 32, verses 3 through 4, if you want to go back to them, gives us a window into David's soul during that one-ish year period between 2 Samuel 11 and 2 Samuel 12, when God eventually sends his prophet Nathan to confront David about this betrayal. Remember what David says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. 
Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as the heat of summer. That's what was going on in David, with David, on the inside. But we might imagine that although he tells us what was going on on the inside, it bore very little resemblance to what was going on or what he was trying to portray on the outside. So if you're keeping notes, that's the intro. But the good news is, unlike trained professional pastors, I only have two points. (laughs) Covered up and covered over. Covered up and covered over. So covered up. Uh, You may have heard the expression, sin makes us stupid, right? And that's true. I'm pretty sure that uh, David felt that way the morning after. What have I done? What was I thinking? How stupid of me to do this, right? Have you ever been there? Maybe not in the exact circumstance of David, but you've looked back and you said, what was I thinking? Well, sin doesn't leave us there. Sin leads us into worlds of self-deception and hiding and concealing and cover-up. The cascading element of sin, a one-night stand, which turns into into deception of Uriah, which turns into full-fledged murder and conspiracy, leads us to delve further and further into a world of hiding, rationalization, and self-deceit. These events, singular events, specific things that happen begin to take on a life unto themselves and they become life narratives. They're no longer just a thing. They're an entire storyline. And in Psalm 32, David is showing us that he was living in this world and it was eating him up like a cancer. About 11 years ago, um, I was on business and happened at that time to travel to Southern California where my family is originally from. And my mom's family had stayed in Southern California and the uncle that I knew most lived and and grew up and and, uh, his whole life in LA region. And um, I had an opportunity to be able to visit with him two days before he passed from colon cancer. He was an extremely athletic man. He was an nth degree black belt in Kung Fu. He was a martial arts specialist who helped train actors in Hollywood. He was a well, he was a surfer. He was just a really put together guy. But when I saw him two days before he passed on the back end of his life, he was gaunt, frail, couldn't walk, couldn't even lift up his head, had to be carried everywhere. Looked like one of those pictures of an emaciated person in a third world country. Could barely even speak, it was hard, it was so inaudible. All he could almost do is just talk to you with his eyes. And some of you have experienced that, you've seen people go through that. You know what I'm talking about. How you go from somebody who's so healthy and so athletic and so put together to that. But that is exactly what David is telling us was going on in his soul. Right? Now on the outside, presumably, he's trying to manage it all. 
because we're good at that. He was doing kingly things. He was managing the affairs of the kingdom. He was watching his treasury. He was keeping track of the battles. He was managing the affairs of the household. He was probably avoiding God and definitely hiding. So you can imagine some kind of story that goes like this. He walks out. He sees a buddy. The buddy's like, hey, boss, how are you doing? Doing good, good, very good. Look a little tired. Well, bum knee, you know, you slay too many Philistines, and it's not like they've had the reconstructive surgery for another millennia or so, so it's hard to sleep. Sleep is hard, you know. I get it, you know. Who could blame you for all that? I, I get this. But how's the wife? Wife doing good? Yeah, yeah, she's, she's doing well, you know. Shame about Uriah, right? It's just a shame. Just a casualty of war. You hate to see that happen, right? You hate to see any, any of your people go down. But she's, she's, she's getting over it? Yeah, I would say so. I think so, yeah. You sure you're doing okay? You look a little tired, boss. You sure you're, you're all right? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Everything's good. All right. Well, hang in there. Everything's good until everything is not good. Right? Maybe you know what I mean. This is the game we often try to play when we manage concealed patterns of sin. We think we are managing it, but it is managing us. And that plays out in different ways. In his book, Soul of Shame, Soul of Shame, author Kurt Thompson, who is a Christian psychiatrist and also specializes in um, just in all things, smart things about the brain, cognitive stuff, he relates a story about a patient that he, na- he calls Carla, who was, he says, referred to me because of her insomnia, and what she wanted was someone to help her sleep, or something to help her sleep. In her story, coming to see a psychiatrist was about finding a solution to a problem with her biorhythms. Tell me about your marriage, I said. While treating sleep disorders is, cer- is certainly about biochemistry and brain function, it is no less about relationships. And she replied, my marriage is fine. And Thompson says, as anyone who speaks with a mental health professional might know, when you use the word fine to describe anything, you are asking for a full court exploratory press. (laughs) She went on to discuss how stead and boring things had become with her husband Preston. He seemed so passive and uninterested in her since the second child had been born. This inevitably led to more conversation about what she was doing with all the feelings about the seemingly most important relationship in her life, her marriage. And then with surprising nonchalance and candor, she blurted it out. I'm having an affair with my boss. Instantly. Thompson says her demeanor changed as if she had been waiting for months, years even to say this to someone. But the moment the cat was out of the bag, she recoiled with revulsion from what she had just admitted. Not unlike the immediate relief which we experience from having an abscess lanced only to be sickened by the appearance of the nature of the pus pouring forth. Her embarrassment was immediate and palpable and she could barely speak, let alone look at me. Tears began to flow. He says, I attempted to gently move closer to the topic of her fragile heart. I don't want to talk about that, Carla said. That's not why I'm here. I just want to get some sleep. 
Well, not unlike David, Carla's bones were wasting away by groaning all day long. It wasn't an audible groaning, presumably, but it was the physical result of her soul's conscience screaming out. It was the shame of her continued conspiracy bottled up with seemingly nowhere to go. It was the result of sustained betrayal against God, against her family, against her husband, and against herself. Now, at this point, you may be thinking one of two things, maybe three. Andrew, don't bring this guy up again. (laughs) Please. But first, you may be thinking, this is not my problem. Uh, Not sure why I had to come today, because I'm not in an adulterous relationship with David or Carla. I'm certainly not a murderer like David, so, you know, I'm clean. I'm good. And to you, I would say, I hope that's true. I do, sincerely. I hope you are clean. But please understand, this is not just about the adultery and the murder and the big stuff. This is about any pattern of sin, which starts off like a small weed and eventually takes over the garden. You know what I mean? It's like the gardener in Florida denying that the weeds exist. Weeds? Right? Do, do you see weeds here? Anybody see weeds? I do not see weeds. Do we have weeds in Florida? Does, does that exist? Do we have weeds in Florida? No, no. Weeds don't see weeds. Right? Well, conversely, you may also be thinking, this guy knows more about me than he should. Well, I assure you, I don't. But I do know about myself. And I do about know about some common experiences that tend to plague us all. And if you're sitting in your seat right now feeling that God's hand, hand is heavy upon you, then ironically you may be exactly where God would have you because it's where God had David and it's a hand of mercy, not a hand of judgment. Which brings us to part two, covered over. Now, not unlike Carla, I believe that by the time Nathan the prophet comes knocking at the door, at David's door, David was a piece of tenderized meat. Right? God had allowed him to sit and swirl in his own mess, haunted by his own shame, churned up by his own self-deception, and thoroughly beat up. You see, unlike our images of good parents who bring the lollipops and the candy, and Cheryl said, do I have to have lollipops and candy on the way out today? That's not part of that guest speaker's... No, okay, good, good. That's good. The lollipops and the treats, God is truly a good parent. And truly good parents, as Hebrews reminds us, discipline the children that they love, and that discipline is not always pleasant rather painful, but brings about the fruit of righteousness that good parents are seeking. And God's heavy hand was a hand of discipline preparing David to come clean. Let's take a look at at verse 5 again, and then we'll jump to verse 1. Then I acknowledged, David said, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And then let's hop back to verse 1, because this is where it all starts. Blessed is the one, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. 
Blessed is the one. Many of you would know that this word blessed is literally happy is the one. Happy is the one. Now, soul's peace, that soul's peace is the one. Now, who in this world is not trying to find happiness? I mean, if you want to find one modern mantra that's guaranteed to stick, just say, I really want you to be happy. I, I just want everybody to be happy. I mean, that's a guaranteed non-controversial statement, right? Can't mess that up. Everybody wants to be happy. But how do you define happiness? How do we define happiness? Well, well beyond the, the stereotypical American dream stuff of the nice family and the, the great career and the great tangible items and the two-bedroom, one-million-dollar house in Jupiter now. <laughs> A few people are going to venture into more philosophical stuff, like making a difference or being true to myself or being a good whole person. Now, these are nice sentiments, and I, I don't want to make fun of them, but when we wake up like David and Carla did, and we find out we're not really such good whole people, what do you do with that? What does being true to yourself mean in that case? It sounds thoughtful. It sounds nice. But if we think about it, it kind of rings hollow. I mean, how do you be true to somebody that you've already determined, if you're honest, is pretty messed up? No, I would suggest real blessing and real happiness comes when we are ultimately at peace with God. Not even at peace with ourselves, because on any given day we might be up, we might be down, we might be left, we might be right, pointing this way or sideways, but God is only always true north. He's a stable heading, and more importantly, he's the only one who can give our souls ultimate rest. You see, Carla thought that she just needed a prescription, and that's what we always think. We think we can medicate away a tortured conscience. But as she discovered, she needed the forgiveness that came with a genuine and authentic acknowledgement of her guilt. She had to be honest with God. She had to be honest with herself. And as it turns out, if you read the rest of the story, she ultimately had to be honest with her husband, which was a long process. This vulnerability, it's counterintuitive to every hiding mechanism that we have. But here's the rub. Take a look again at verse 7. You are, you, God, are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble. That's an interesting statement in the context of what what, um, David is saying here. You, God, are my hiding place. That's interesting because do you think perhaps that David may have been considering the fact that the entire time he was hiding, He was hiding everywhere except in God. Isn't that the heart of self-deception? Isn't that what we do? We lie to ourselves. We rationalize to ourselves. We take ourselves everywhere except where we need to be. The only truth is, ironically, the only safe place, really safe place, is found in the Rock of Ages, cleft for me, you know this, let me hide myself where? In thee. Well, Rock of Ages is a good song of deliverance. 
How about this one? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued amazing love? How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? We might know that one very well, that verse, but how about this one? Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin, bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Or, finally, no condemnation. Now I dread Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. You see, by the time Paul gets a hold of Psalm 32, he's ready, in the words of another Paul, the late Paul Harvey, to tell the rest of the story. Now you might be saying, Paul, I remember David, I remember Carla, we got a little Nathan, maybe even a little Saul. Where, where is Paul? But you, you know what I'm talking about. In Romans 3 and Romans 4, David knew, as Paul reminds us, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. David experienced that. He experienced it as much as you or I could ever experience it, but he didn't know how God was going to work it out. He didn't have the rest of the story. Well, Paul, the apostle, fills in the gap for us in Romans 4 when he tells us that this blessedness is credited to the ungodly through faith. And just a few verses before, in chapter 3, he reminds us, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known by which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Ironically, ironically, David's deliverer, the object of David's song, was the son of David himself the Messiah, the Christ. Now, before I close, I want to make one final point, and I am closing, so this talk doesn't sound like a Disney movie, because we can do this. Um, we only have so much time, and we want it to be happy ever after and all that, and, and it is, but... But please understand, if you continue through the progression of 2 Samuel, you will see that there are long-term repercussions associated with David's transgression. There just are. Beyond the death of the ill-conceived child, there are definite threads between Absalom's rebellion and David's treachery. For example, many believe that Ahathophel, David's advisor, who crosses over to Absalom's side and encourages Absalom to do lewd things with David's concubines, on the rooftop so that all of Israel would see it and all of Israel would know, they believe that that was motivated by vengeance over the treatment of Ahathophel's granddaughter, who was Bathsheba. I don't know if that's true. 
But what we do know is that David's remaining years carried plenty of turbulence with them. But we also know that he was completely restored. He could sing songs of deliverance and he went to the grave knowing that he was blessed because his sin had not been counted against him. In the sight of God, in the sight of the eternal king. And among the final words he would speak, as documented in Psalm 23, verse 5, he said, If my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part. Surely he would not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire. But it was right. His house was right. He was secured by the blood of Christ. So my question this morning is a simple one. Are we? Are you? Are I? Are I? Covering up? Or are we? Are you? Am I? Covered over? by the blood of Christ? Have we come clean? Really come clean? And are we being made clean? Because I think that is what this table is about. So I leave you with verse 11 without commentary. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing. Sing, all of you who are upright in heart. Let's pray. Lord, what can we say when we see a truth such as this? How can we say thank you enough that as mired in the muck of transgression and sin and deception and lying to ourselves, You deliver us. You put words back in our mouths. You bring the song back into the shepherd's lips and into ours. Thank you for that which we could never repay. And thank you for this table that reminds us of your everlasting blessing, the sin that will not be counted against us because it was counted against Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you, Lane. Well, in response to that word we heard about Psalm 32, we're going to sing a version of Psalm 32. You can find that page 9 and 10 of your bulletin. It's a new song, but a familiar tune to us, hopefully. So the tune, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. So let's stand, let's sing that together, page 9 and 10.